We're working through the book of Malachi in the Old Testament, which, uh, just to give, give a little bit of background on it really, just so, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a block of books that we call the Minor Prophets, just towards the end of the Old Testament. The Old Testament's the part of the Bible written before Jesus came, and, um, and they're called Minor Prophets because they're, they're, uh, they're small books, small, small works really. And Malachi is the last one of those, and, um, and so really what we find is that Malachi is the final prophetic voice before Jesus comes. And just to give you a little bit of history, just so you understand very briefly the background, what's happened is this, is it's not a good situation at all. Um, most of the prophetic books speak into a bad situation, because the prophets have basically been sent by God to call God's people back to himself, and really to, 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 to bring God's heart where people have just become nominal. They've become uh, nominally religious, okay? So what's happened is they've actually lost the sense of the nearness of God. They've not lost a genuine sense of awe uh, of God. They've lost a genuine uh, sense of um, being aware of his glory, his presence and his nearness. And they've moved away from that into nominal religion. In the sense that they're going through the motions or they're compromising. And so God sends the prophet who really comes and he just brings a wake-up call and the idea is, is, that, is that the idea is literally that. It's like an alarm which, which causes people, it shakes them out of a spiritual stupor. And it's like, oh, and then it calls them back. It paints a, a, a picture of the glory of God, paints a picture of the, the, just the magnificence of, of who God is, and then calls people back to himself, to the prophets. That's how, that's how the prophetic books work. And so in Malachi, what's happened is, is that uh, the Jews who were obviously in Jerusalem and in Israel, because of their multiplied sins and multiplied um, hard-hearted, stubborn resistance to God and the prophets, God, God warned them, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy my, my city, Jerusalem, and I'm going to actually um, throw you out into exile for 70 years. That then came to pass, and under King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians came and took many and many of the Israelites out uh, from Israel, Jerusalem, into exile, into Babylon, where they stayed for 70 years. And then by this point, the Babylonians have been overthrown as the world power. The Persians have come in. And, uh, and God used the Persian king Cyrus to, to, to really uh, bring back and allow the Jews to come back to rebuild, firstly, their temple, and then the city of Jerusalem. And so uh, the Jews had come back with high hopes and big expectations. Uh, they then rebuilt the temple and rebuilt the city, and then stepped back and looked at it and thought, this isn't very impressive. And really their expectations and their hopes in many ways were dashed. And you know what it's like when that happens? You can very easily then sink into disappointment, cynicism, and just a sense of, what's the point? And that's really what happened with these uh, Jews in Malachi's time. And we're talking around about 400 BC. And what they've done is, is that really they've just dropped into a real compromised state in their heart. And so the, the spiritual leaders, the priests, their job was to provide sacrifices, there are two, two roles, first was to provide sacrifices for the people's sins, and the whole idea was, was that they, if someone sinned, they, uh, that person would bring uh, an animal, but it had to be spotless, without blemish, so it couldn't be blind, it couldn't have broken legs, it had to be absolutely spotless, the reason being, that the reason why God accepted the sacrifice was because it reminded him, weird language, because I'm talking about the future, so he normally reminded of the past, but anyway, it reminded God of the sacrifice of his spotless son. And so no goat or lamb's blood ever procured anyone's forgiveness, 
But as that lamb or goat without spot or blemish was offered, uh, uh, it went up, figuratively speaking, to the nostrils of God and soothed him and reminded him of, of the sacrifice of his son, Jesus, whose blood would procure the forgiveness of sins. And so whenever anyone offered a, a sacrifice that was blemished or spotless, it was no longer satisfactory in the sense it no longer pointed to Christ. And so it was absolutely uh, disdained in the sight of God. And God says, this is, uh, this is ridiculous. And he really strongly rebukes the priests for doing this. The second thing is, is that the priests were supposed to instruct the people in how to follow God. You know, um, I guess naturally we just don't know, do we? So that their, their role was to just speak about the ways of God, uh, the moral standards and all that sort of stuff. But what the priests had done is because they had compromised in their hearts, they'd started teaching compromise. That's the way, isn't it? You know, that's the way of all of us, isn't it? If, if you begin to compromise on a few things, even, even to your own moral standards, then you begin with others to tell them that that's okay too. Because if you say it's not okay, you're condemning yourself. You understand what I mean? Yeah? So let's imagine that, you know, let's imagine that I, I, I work in an office and there's lots of stationery going around. And I think to myself, no, I'm not going to take it home because it's not mine. It belongs, to the, it belongs to the office. And then as years go on, I think, you know what, it's no big deal, you know, it's fine. And so, then, and so then I'll take a few rubbers and pencils and whatever and staplers home and that. And then someone maybe says to me, uh, it's new employee starts, and they say, is it okay to take you know, pencils and rubbers and that? What am I going to say? I'm going to say, yeah, it's no big deal. Why? Well, because I've changed. You see? And so the priests had done that. They were compromised in their heart, and so they began to just teach all kinds of compromised doctrine. And as a result, the people were just going way off. And God's almost, you know, pulling his hair out, saying, come on. And he's bringing correction to them, but they're very resistant to it. And they're arguing with him and defending themselves, as we do, um, to try to show they're in the right. So that's where we're up to. And now we get to chapter 2, verse 17 of Malachi. And I'm going to read you this conversation. And um, please, I'm going to try and read it as well as I can. So please follow me. If you've got a Bible, turn to Malachi. If not, no problem. Just sit. If it helps you, close your eyes and you can just listen. It's a very lively dialogue. Malachi 2, verse 17. You've wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? Well, by saying... Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where's the God of justice? God speaking, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire. And like fullers or like a launderer's soap, he'll sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he'll purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they'll bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I'll draw near to you for judgment. I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely against those who oppress the hired workers in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, the traveller. And don't fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, don't change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, you're not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes and you've not kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. I'm going to read that again because that's for someone tonight. Return to me and I will return to you says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Well, will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. You say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions. You're cursed with the curse, because you're robbing me. 
the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, as the Lord of hosts, for if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need, I'll rebuke the devourer for you, so that it won't destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you'll be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? Well, you've said it's vain to serve God. What's the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I'll spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then, once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Okay. It's a long long scripture, I want to just help you understand the conversation in a nutshell. You'll understand it best if you look at the first sentence and the last sentence. It's part of one big long conversation. So let's just look at the first sentence again. You've wearied the Lord with your words, but, um, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where's the God of justice? Here's what's going on. The Jews in Malachi's time, they were looking at their fields, agricultural society, and they're looking at their crops and their crops are that high. And then they're looking at their, you know, the other nations, for example, who don't worship the Lord and who worship all kinds of other gods. And their crops are that high. And they're thinking, hold on a minute. I, I thought we were God's people. I thought we were the blessed ones. There's no difference. Or maybe this was happening. They were looking at the Persian army, which is conquering the world. And then they were looking at their army, which is barely able to defend their own city. And they're going, hold on a minute. I thought we were God's people. What's this about? And so what they started to say was this. They started to say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Yeah? Because look, they're doing evil. They're worshipping these gods that require we put our very babies through the fire. The god Molech, a lot of them would have worshipped. You'd put your baby literally through the fire. Offer child sacrifice. Doing these things. Disgusting things. And But look at them. They seem just as blessed as us. What is it? And then they start saying, where's the god of justice? He's absent. And then if you look at the... No, no, we won't do that yet. (laughs) Sorry. Now, here's the interesting thing. God says to them, you're wearying me with these words. Now, why? Because it seems pretty fair, really. It seems like you think, well, no, you know, surely if you're God's people and he's blessing you, it should be evident. Why just be the same as everyone else? If you go back years before this to Abraham, when Abraham, God's about to destroy the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, the two cities, and Abraham's before God, and Abraham says... Surely, you know, surely you won't sweep away the righteous with the wicked. If there's even ten righteous there, can you spare the city? See, it's the same logic. He's saying to God, you don't treat the righteous and the wicked the same. God doesn't say to Abraham, you're really wearying me. God is moved by Abraham's prayers and there's a sense of really working together. Later on, the prophet Habakkuk, he says to God, he says, why, oh God, why do you let the evil get, people get away with what they're doing? And his words are really strong. He says, you sit idly by while the wicked do these things. Really strong words. What does God do? Does God say to Habakkuk, you're weary of me? No, he doesn't. What does he say? He says, I'm going to show you what I'm going to do, Habakkuk. It's going to be amazing. When it comes to these guys, 
saying the same thing. God says, you're really wearing them. Why? Here's why. The last sentence. From verse 16, it seems like for the first time in the book, some of God's people start thinking, do you know what, maybe we're not right. Maybe some of the things God's saying are right and we've been in the wrong. And it says those who feared the Lord. They weren't so up themselves, all right? Sorry for the phrase, that's a bit rude for some of you. But they weren't so full of it or whatever it is, you know, I don't want to be offensive or crude, but that they kind of were just like, well, no, I'm never wrong. Yeah, you know, you know people like that. You, you, you try and correct them and it's like, trying to, it's like trying to grasp a cactus. Yeah, you just try and it's like, but ow, what? Because, well, no, how can you? And it's bang, bang, defence. But there's some that say, actually, do you know what? I'm feeling a bit convicted. I'm feeling like maybe God's, maybe God's right here. And I love this. Those who feared the Lord, they, they had a chat. They spoke to one another. Oh, and the Lord paid attention and heard their conversation. That's all it takes. He's easy to please. They just said, look, maybe we're in the wrong. And God's like, oh, zones in. Some humility. A little bit of humility. Oh, it's a beautiful thing, yeah? And God, he listens in. And then, and then God, what does God, and they're they described as those who fear the Lord and esteem his name. They're not so esteeming their own name. They're esteeming his name. But listen, and God says, they shall be mine. Says the Lord of hosts, when I make up my treasure possession. Listen, verse 18, this is the key sentence. Then, once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Here's the point of the whole passage today. The Jews in Malachi's time are saying to God, God, you're not distinguishing between us and them. God's looking at them and he's saying, that's because I can't distinguish between you and them. You get that? They're saying you're not distinguishing. God's saying that's right. I can't see any difference between you and them. In your heart, there's no real love for me. You're just going through the motions. Uh, you're just really doing your own thing. You might pretend you're different from the other nations because they're worshipping the God at Molech, but actually you're going into my temple and it looks externally like you're doing it, but you don't love me. You don't really love me. So it's just, it's just it's, it's pretense. God hates pretense. God hates just religious ritual. Absolutely hates it. You know, it doesn't earn you any points. That sort of stuff with God. And God's saying, do you know what? There's absolutely no difference between you and them. And so if I was to really just pour out immeasurable blessing and really own the way you're living, that's irresponsible. Because the nations will look on and say, look at these guys being super abundantly blessed. Uh, What's their secret? Oh, look at their secret. Uh, It's empty religious ritual. We must really get into that. Because we want our crops that high too. So God's saying, I can't. I can't do that. It's It's just irresponsible. That's why God says, return to me, and I'll return to you. I'm waiting. I'm just longing to pour out blessing. It's the heart of God. Listen, God does not have a problem blessing people. And he doesn't bless people who earn it. It's not that. It's not, God's not saying, if only you do this, this. He's not saying that at all. All it is, is, is that these Jews, they're so, they're so, they've become religious hypocrites. Well, we're God's people. And it's like, well, how so? Well, we're descended from Abraham. But actually, you're not, really, in the sense that what it was about Abraham was his faith. He believed God. He trusted God. Now, physically, you might be descended from him, but there's no faith in you. There's no living faith. And really, you're just resting on your heritage in terms of your natural physical line. But you're not really a child of Abraham. He was my friend. He walked with me. He trusted me. You're just going through the motions. You're not a, he's not a descendant of Abraham. 
I said, well, we're circumcised, so what? There's a whole book called Galatians about that. You want to find out the futility of circumcision for salvation? Read Galatians, what it's about, okay? And so this is the situation. It's, It's very, very relevant. Very relevant for people that have a false confidence. A confidence that somehow... Well, somehow I'm right with God because, well, why? Well, it could be any number of reasons. Well, it could be, well, I'm, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. Not bad as so-and-so. You know, I'm like, surely that counts for something. But what you're doing is you're building, you're building like a, it's called self-righteousness. You're, you're, you're constructing something inside that makes you feel like, well, surely, surely God will accept me. Surely God will say, it's okay. But you're constructing something yourself as a house of cards. It's a house of cards. It will do you no good before God at all. Or maybe it's, well, you don't understand. My, my dad's a vicar. Yeah, my dad's a vicar. It's like, oh, I'm descended from Abraham. My dad's a vicar. Well, that's, that's great. That's not, that's not bad. But, but what, what is that? It's a false confidence. Well, somehow, well, surely God will, because my dad, no, it's a false confidence. And this is really the heart. And so God has to really get to work on these people because God gets to the heart of things. And so... And so here's what God says. God says, uh, first, chapter 3, verse 1. So that, where's the God of justice? He says, so I've given you the whole conversation, all right? And um, there's one specific example, money. In money, I'm preaching on money next week. Never preached on it in the three years we've had church, okay? So if you're from one of those churches that always preaches on money and you're here for the first time and you're thinking, oh, no, not that again. No, first time ever in three years, I've got a blinder of a message. Uh, we're going to have a great time. <laughs> We're going to have a great time. There's some lovely stuff in here on money. So, um, so that's an example of how God wants to bless them, but, you know, just some faith stuff. But I want to just look at the, the more general thing today. Where, so God says, chapter 3, verse 1, okay, they're saying, where's the God of justice? God says, behold, I send my messenger, and he'll prepare the way before me. That's John the Baptist. Uh, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, Jesus, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Uh, in brackets... In 400 years' time. And we just want to just pause for a minute because I just want you to understand something here. Um, you've got to understand that God doesn't see time like you and I do. So they're moaning and complaining. Now, I don't know, if you're anything like me, if someone accuses me of something, I, I want to vindicate myself straight away. Yeah? Are anyone else like that in the room? Yeah. You, someone's been saying that. Where's, where's my phone? What's that number? You right? I want to put things straight. Why? Uh, pride. The thought of not putting that straight as soon as would give me big problems. Why? Pride. God being, I don't know how he does it, being utterly transcendent and yet very, very humble. Amazing, isn't he? Wow. Very, very patient. God just says, God says, well, I'm going to, yeah, okay. Well, you look, I'm going to send my messenger. So it sounds imminent, doesn't it? And 400 years later, John the Baptist comes. And I just want to say this to you. You might be thinking, you know what? God's taken a long time to fulfill what he's spoken over my life. It hasn't been 400 years yet, has it? <laughs> Look on the bright side. I mean, it's like God giving you like a prophetic promise in the year 1600. <laughs> and it comes to pass now, you know. It's, that's what it's like. Uh, you've got to understand this is a reality. And at the point I just want to make briefly, it's not really even related, but I think blow it. Listen, because Christians, people are impatient. Am I right? Yeah. Terribly impatient. And I've known Christians go way off track because God hasn't done something they thought he was going to do when, he, when they thought he was going to do it. Literally, I've seen Christians totally 
move away from God. Why? Well, God said, but, you know, oh, this was in my heart, this dream, but it didn't happen. Or God said, God, I felt God promised he was going to save my parents and they're not saved yet. Yeah. Yeah, but disappointment creeps in, it gets under your skin and you, you, in your heart you move away. You've got to understand, especially if you're young. And I don't mean this in a patronising way. <laughs> if you're young, you've got to get this. Because sometimes you know, speak to young Christians and it's like, you know, they're in bits. It's like, what's the matter? I'm covered in season. It's a nightmare. It's just a nightmare. I can't hold on much longer. Oh, man, how long have you been in this for? Three days. <laughs> Three days. And it's like, oh. <laughs> and you feel compassion. You know, but you want to laugh a little bit as well. Because <laughs> you think it's not long. That's not a long time. You know, you, you, you think of some of the things people went through in the Bible. Um, it was, it was kind of longer than that, some of the situations. So God says to Noah, build an ark. It seems like it could have, ta- it seems, that's not explicit, but you do the chronology, it, it seems like it was around 100 years to build it. That's a long time. Mar- a season which would have been marked by all kinds of questions. Did I really hear God? You know, I mean, <laughs> do you know what I mean? You're alive. And people coming and making comments, I'm sure. Still building that thing, you know. Not, I mean, water anywhere, you know. It's what it's like. Various prophets, some prophets, God says, I want you to lie on your side for, uh, I think it was like, how long was it then? You were there. Come on, you do. Make it up. Two years. Two years, right. Now, there, was some, <laughs> there was a prophet, I think Ezekiel and Isaiah, both different things. I think Ezekiel, it's like lie on your side for something like 100 days. Why? Oh, because it, was, it, was, it symbolised something that God was going to do for 100 days. So imagine that's you. These are real people, right? <laughs> How long would you last? <coughs> 40 seconds. Only 99 days. <laughs> 23 hours. I mean, the Bible doesn't repeatedly say wait on the Lord for no good reason. His ways are not your ways. It will almost all the time take longer than you think. Hold the line. Hold your nerve. Just hold your nerve. Just hold your nerve. There are times where you just got to hold your nerve. You got that? All right, okay. So it's by the Bible, I wanted to say that. Okay, so, so God says, right, okay, so we're going to send John the Baptist, we're going to send Jesus. And so at this point, people are thinking, all right, God, God's going to do something. And then God says, 3 verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? Who can endure? Who can stand? Well, you say, well, why? Here's why. For he's like a refiner's fire and he's like a fuller's soap. Now let's just look at those two illustrations for a moment. A refiner's fire, what would happen? The refiner would get the gold. Now gold, wonderful as it is, naturally is filled with dross or impurities. And so in order for it to become pure, it has to be put into the fire where it's heated up to an uncomfortable heat. Um, at which point the dross can begin to come through and out onto the surface and then you can wipe it off. Now traditionally the refiner would put it through the fire seven times before it would be seen that this is, this is now considered pure gold. Well, the Lord is saying, when the Christ comes, he's like that. He's like that person. He will take the gold, you, Christian, his treasured possession, 
and he will put you in the fire. And he'll turn it up until the impurities that are in there come out. He'll, he'll squeeze you. All right? Why? Because he loves you so much and what he's, what he's made you is so precious and he so wants to display his glory through you. Believe me, he wants to display his glory for, through you in such a way that it will be like technicolour bursting out into a, a black and white world. And I want to say this to you, the world we live in is a black and white world. There's, 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 much is promised, um, but in terms of what, is, what can actually be delivered, it, it, it's always disappointment. It's fleeting pleasure, the Bible describes it as. Pleasure, yeah, yes, but fleeting pleasure. Very often associated afterwards with regret, guilt, shame, sense of futility. What was that about? Yeah? That's, what the, that's the best the world can offer. So yes, yes, pleasure, definitely, but fleeting. But what God wants to do is so infuse you with the glory of heaven, so infuse you with, the, with, with, with uh, his actual presence in you that can shine through without the dross always marring it and getting it in the way, okay? Because he loves you that much and he's, he wants to put you on display as a trophy. That's this kind of language and imagery the Bible uses, trophy of his grace. And so he'll put you through the fire. The other thing, so that sounds a bit, oh, I'm not sure about that, but at least we've got the fullest soap. He's like the fullest soap. That sounds nice, isn't it? Yeah? He'll give us a little, little scrub, you know, a little, little wash. Be nice. Showers are nice things. Well, here's the problem. Here's the problem. The word there for fullers, uh, it means to trample. It means to trample because the, how they would wash clothes in the old days is that they would put the clothes down and they would stamp all over it in water to get those really built-in stains out. So, what's being said is that Jesus is going to come, he's going to burn you up and stamp you out. <laughs> it's good news, eh? It's gospel, eh? It's a good news message, isn't it? <laughs> well, actually it is. It's the best news you could ever imagine. It's the best news. But I will say this to you. There's nothing superficial about it. Nothing. There's nothing superficial about the Lord. So if you're coming in here on some superficial ticket, oh, I love the music. <laughs> Music's great. We're all well and good. All well and good. But that's not what he's about primarily. Okay? He's about glorifying you. He wants to glorify you. You were made for glory. You were made in his image to reflect his glory. You're made for glory. But because we're ruined by sin, he has to deal with us. He has to deal with us in this refiner's fire, laundress soap way. And um, apart from his grace, none of us can stand. It's right, isn't it? But praise God, by his grace, he can so work in us and so give us a heart, miraculously, that wants to know him more than anything else, that when the fire does increase, or when the stamping gets a bit, oh man, there's something in there deeper than anywhere else that says, but I just want to know you. Anyone relate to that? And you're thinking, this is horrible. <laughs> there are seasons like that in the Christian life. If anyone, any other Christian minister told you otherwise, they're a salesman. Okay? There are seasons like that where you're thinking, the pressure is on here. And actually, it's quite tempting to just run out now. And you see even Christians sometimes do it. But what, what is it that keeps you there? Here's what it is. It's the miraculous work of grace whereby at the point of conversion, God replaces your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And written into that heart of flesh is the very 
is the, is the very affections and the very, uh, the very heart of God, the very things, uh, the presence of God and the things he loves. And so when, when the fire comes and the stamping's happening, that, that deep, deep work, deeper than any other work in you, it says, I know it's not, it doesn't feel ideal. <laughs> in fact, it feels really hard, but I just want to know him. And if this is what he's doing, I'll sit it out. I'll sit it out. And the result is this. He'll purify the sons of Levi, refine them like gold and silver, and they'll bring offerings in righteousness. And then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. Now, isn't that the goal of every Christian? To know the favour of heaven? He's pleased with me. That is natural. There's nothing, you, see it, you see it in the natural. You see it with children and their dad. What, are, what the children want more than anything else is to please their parents. Before they get to a certain age... <laughs> where sometimes that changes. But let me say this, if it does change, it's for a reason. If it does change, they've either, they've either, been, they've either been ignored loads, so they think, what's the point? I'm never going to please them. Right? So they, that way. Or something else has happened and they've grown cynical or whatever. But it, deep in the nature of every child is, I want to please... I remember when I, I, remember when, um, uh, when I was... When my, my eldest, who, when she was about one and a half years old or two years old, I'd come in from work, she'd hear the key in the door... And she, so Davina, my wife, who was indoors with her, she'd say that Daisy, she would do this. She'd run around looking for anything. And, it's like, ah! and she'd pick up a couple of bits of Lego stuff together and run to the door. And when I got in, she'd go. <laughs> and she just wanted to present me with something that would make me smile. But it was just like, ah, quick. Yeah, I've got it. I've got it. I've got something. Yeah? And I mean, I was delighted in her anyway. But there was something in that. I just thought, this is beautiful, man. I see you running down the hallway with these two bits of Lego stuck together. You know, I think, it's, it's, it's amazing. You know, I, would, I, I love those two bits of Lego. Why? Because it was her bringing it. And there's something in our, in our heart where we just, I want to know if you're born again. If you're not born again, all of this is making no sense. <laughs> yeah, because you've got to be born again. Jesus said, if you're not born again, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. This stuff, it's kind of just, you're probably going into thinking, what's he on about? Because you're just in the natural at the moment. You're just a natural man or woman. You've not been, you've not been reconciled. That, that work of grace, that where God makes you born again, gives you a new heart, hasn't happened. That's what you need. That's what you need. And that comes just by putting your trust in Christ. But once that's happened, your deepest desires, I just want to please him. And his desire is to just welcome you. And that's what we want. And then, so God says, that's what's going to happen. And then, and then there's this final bit where he just says, and then I'll draw near to you for judgment. Here's the thing. They've said, where's the God of justice? God says, okay, I'll draw near to you for judgment. How does that work? Because we see justice as a good thing and judgment as a bad thing. That's not the case. You see, we like justice, don't we? You get a parking ticket and you, know, you, were, you, know, you weren't wrongfully parked. I want justice, yeah? We see it as positive. But judgment we see as negative. Well, don't you judge me. We see that as a negative thing. It's wrong thinking. Let me understand. Let me, let me explain so you can understand. There's injustice in the world, injustice, because of sin. So in order for justice to come in the world, sin has to be dealt with, which gets dealt with by judgment. And so judgment is part of the process of justice. It's about God putting things right, putting right what's wrong. Okay? So it's very important. And so these Jews in Malachi, they're saying, where's the God of justice? Because they're thinking like, all these pagan nations doing their terrible things. We're the people of God, you know. All these pagan nations and they're, you know, where's the God of justice? Because it's okay. We'll bring some judgment. And what shocks them is it falls on them. It falls on them. See? Because you have to question, are they actually God's people or not? No, they're just religious hypocrites. 
So God says, right, I'm going to be a swift witness against the sorcerers. We'll just go through these things quickly, then we're, then we're done. The sorcerers, those who make spells. Um, I just want to say, if, you are, if you're into anything like uh, any kind of witchcraft, um, it's, about, it's all about control. Sorcery and spells, and it's all about control. Controlling other people to do what you can. You can be well into witchcraft without being into witchcraft. What do I mean? If you're a controller of people and manipulator of circumstances, that's witchcraft. You might not be, you might not have us pointed out and be stirring up a cauldron, but you're into witchcraft. <laughs> I know witches don't do that. I know that. All right. <laughs> Sorcery, predicting the future. You can do that in subtle ways. So you can go to a fortune teller. That's a really unsubtle way. You can do it in subtle ways where you begin to say, um, well, in five years' time, I'm going to be here. And with no reference to God, no reference to trusting God at all. In fact, you just deify your plan. This is what's going to happen, blah, 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 blah. It's subtle, but you're getting down that road. It's, it's, just, it's a lack of a robust sense of God is with me, God is going to lead me, God is going to guide me, I'm looking to him, I'm trusting him. If you deify your own plans for the future, you've got to be careful. It's not that you can't plan, but you've got to hold it light, because you've got to ultimately, if you're a Christian, you're about following the glory, yeah? Where are you going, Lord, I'm following you. Against the adulterers, this one always cuts to the heart, because Jesus redefined adultery, didn't he? It was pretty straightforward before Jesus came along. <laughs> and then he got to the heart of it as ever, even if you look lustfully. You commit adultery in your heart. There it is. You're looking lustfully, you're an adulterer. You need to repent. Because I'm going to be a swift witness against that. Those who swear falsely, those who say things they don't mean, those who are double-tongued, just say stuff, but they don't really mean it. Or just, they just learn, learn how to get through life by flattering and by saying, by saying the right thing at the right moment. But there's no candor, there's no honesty, there's no straightforwardness. There's two faces all the time, two, two, two ways of speaking. Those who oppress the hired worker in their wages, so you promise someone something and then they do the thing for you and you change, you change the move, the goalposts, and you move it around. God says, I'm going to speak into that. I hate those things. God hates those things. God hates it when those who are vulnerable and those who need, the, the other, they, they, they need their pay and bosses are being uh, uh, slippery and tricky and, oh yeah, I'll, you know, I'll write you a check next week and they've got no, no, they're not really going to. God hates that. It's very, God, God, I'm going to speak against that. Against those who thrust aside the traveller and don't, those who don't fear me. This is what God says. This is what God says. And I only want to end by just saying this. The key is, is that they had no real sense of the glory of God. They'd been robbed from him. But there was a remnant. There was a remnant among them who feared the Lord. They began to recover, even through the God's hard words, they began to recover something of the sense of glory, lost glory. And they gathered together again. And God says, hey, that's it. It's a returning of the heart. And if you're a Christian today, I want to say this. If you are a believer, but you've just, you've just, you're stale. Or you're just, you're more you're aware of what I do for God and it's, you've lost it. It's like you've, there's this, you've built, constructed something and it's not about what he's done and who he is anymore. It's more become about what you are. Return to him. Return to him. And what will happen? He'll return to you. Yeah? He'll ret- I just want to plead with you. Return to him and he'll return to you. If you are here and you're not a Christian or you're not sure if you're a Christian, you're just not sure where you're at, let me just say some, one thing. Firstly, if you have come across Christians who have been judgmental, if you have come across Christians who have been arrogant, 
Christians who have been um, self-righteous, um, Christians who haven't understood God's grace, then I want to apologize to you on their behalf and just say, I'm sorry that you've experienced that kind of Christianity. I'm sorry. Because it's a horrible thing and it doesn't reflect the heart of God. And I want to ask you not to let that experience become a stumbling block for you to stop you coming to know Jesus because he's not like that. He's not like that. He's all good. And he's a pleasure to live with. <laughs> he's an absolute pleasure to walk with. And so if you've seen a wrong example of Christianity, something dead or just ritualistic or just legalistic, I want to just say, look, please, you know, on those people's behalf, I'm sorry. If you've even seen that or with any of that in me, I'm sorry. Yeah, I want to say Jesus is all good. He's all good. And he loves you enough to have laid down his life for you. And he wants you. And um, he's made it real easy. Only believe. <laughs> God, do anything, he's done it. Put your trust in him, make him your Lord. And on that note, I'll end by saying we're going to take the bread and the wine now.